Stefan Flam. He is a graduate of the Swedish Institute, a licensed massage therapist in New York and South Carolina, specializing in deep tissue, sports, medical, shiatsu, Swedish, trigger point therapy, rapid release technique, and manual lymphatic drainage. Stefan is nationally certified with the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, the Pilates Sports Center, and has his KBC Level 2 Instructor and USAW Lifting Coach Certificates. He also does TRX spinning and is a Schwinn Cycling Instructor. Stefan attended Woodward where he trained and competed and he served as the US Team Massage Therapist in Athens, Greece and at the 2004 Mixed Martial Arts World Cup. He's also a musician and guitar player, most recently touring with his band Winter. Welcome, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, Stefan, can you start us off? How did you get started in music? How did you learn to play guitar and get interested in doing that? I would say my biggest musical influence was my father. Um, he was a record collector. So we had like 50,000 records in our home. That's a lot of records. Yeah, he was, and he was into everything. It didn't mm -hmm. matter what it was, jazz, black vocal music. He actually had a record label called Bim Bam Boom, which was a black vocal mm -hmm. doo-wop label. And um, as young children, we went to every JVC jazz festival. Then my parents were really uh -huh. into music. My mom was pregnant with the Woodstock. <laughs> so, you know, definitely a music That family. might explain a lot. Yeah, right? it definitely explains yeah. quite a few things, baby, for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I would say he was probably my biggest influence, and just being around it all the time just became something that was everywhere. When we got in the car, you know, mm -hmm. when we went on vacations, whatever we did, there was always music. Mm -hmm. And um, did old. he play guitar, or did he play another instrument? He didn't play any instruments, mm -hmm. but he kind of um, just a music lover mm -hmm. in general, and um, exposed me and my brother to everything. Mm -hmm. um, when I started getting into music. Um, I remember, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn in the early years, and then that was more like a disco town. Mm -hmm. Bensonhurst, mm -hmm. Brooklyn, and it didn't really resonate with me so much. But when we moved out to Long Island in the teen years, um, I remember my father giving me Led Zeppelin II. And uh -huh. I heard the song Whole Lot of Love, and I heard that guitar solo, and I says, whoa, I got to do that. <laughs> that's awesome. like, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's to me was like, whoa, I got to learn that. So... Um, that just started the, that was like the fuel for the fire at that mm -hmm. point. You know, I kind of like, um, it, it, it realized that I, that was the kind of music I was interested in. I was already mm -hmm. kind of like a hyperactive kid. I was into bicycling and BMX racing and freestyling and stuff. And it was like a little more aggressive, that music. And mm -hmm. as I, my father had a record room and it was set up like a library and had all these records with a ladder that went around the room and everything. Uh -huh. So... When I started getting to music, he would give me like 10 records at a time. And he'd be like, check these out. Let me know what you think. I kind of report back after like, you know, uh -huh. like, like a month or so, mm -hmm. whatever. I put them on the turntable, whatever. And he'd say, well, what did you like about this? What did you like? What didn't you like? And he'd kind of spoon feed me. So I'd be like, I like this, I like this element. And when he gave me, uh, when he realized I liked Led Zeppelin, he gave me Black Sabbath. Uh -huh. And when I heard the song War Pigs, that was it. That was like, mm -hmm. that was like the, the holy grail to me. I was like, whoa, this is like nothing else, you know? Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
that went on for the rest of my life. So I mean, so like, what do you like about this? What do you like about that? I like this element. And he would go in his you know record collection, pull things out, and give them to me. I solely wanted wanted to play guitar after that. Mm -hmm. This is you know all the stuff mm -hmm. I like was guitar dominant. So I started playing guitar, and then when I would have rehearsals, we'd rehearse in our mm -hmm. garage. And now, how'd you? What was your first band? How'd you first get into uh, playing in a band? Because a lot of people pick up the guitar and it never leaves their you know bedroom. But other people go out and seek people out and, you know, put a band together and start practicing in sure. the garage. So how did that come about for you? That was kind of like, well, it was always, at that point, I started growing my hair long. I was sort of getting to all kinds of other music. And New York was raging at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, New York had a, a thriving punk and hardcore scene. You know, I basically lived like CBGBs and, mm -hmm. and different other places around the city. And in Long Island was Sundance. And mm -hmm. I started really getting into music. And I had already been playing a little bit. And I'm like... I kind of, I want to do that, you know? And then all of a sudden I realized that, you know, you go, at that time period, if you were different, it was pretty obvious, you know? You mm -hmm. had your jocks, your preppy people, and then, you know, I went to school, yo, that guy's got a mohawk over there, he looks kind of cool, what's up? Mm -hmm. Yo, you play anything, mm -hmm. whatever. And next thing you know, you start meeting other people with common interests and just said, hey, let's mess around. And then it just, it was like, you know, that was the initial seed. Mm -hmm. But um, that was it, and I was lucky that my parents were supportive. I mean, listen, mm -hmm. hanging out in the garage. What was like your your favorite gig or your favorite place to play early on? The early on, uh, I really liked playing in New York. I, I mean, we were more like from anarcho punk kind of background a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the stuff when winter really took off. I was already into like Discharge and Amoebics and a lot of different mm -hmm. more like anarcho punk kind of stuff. So that scene was kind of happening in New York alongside of all the New York hardcore stuff that was happening. So you had mm -hmm. the Crawl Mags, Agnostic Front, but then you also had groups like Nausea and those other groups that was like a, like a little sub-scene that was going on. And I mm -hmm. always resonated with more of the, the squat rot shows, which were like played in like Lucky 13 squat and stuff. And there was your benefits, mm -hmm. you know, for, you know, all kinds of different things that were mm -hmm. happening at this, in, in the city at the time. You know, during that time period, New York wasn't the mecca that it is now. It was basically, right. it was a mm -hmm. kind of like people were trying to get out of the city. Yeah. So it was mm -hmm. a different place to lower right. And you could afford now. to do things, you know, yeah. and there were, you know, it wasn't real estate developers. It was people squatting. Yes, and, you squatting know, all over yeah. the place in mm -hmm. New York, you know. We played a lot of those. I have videotapes. I was playing in those, in uh -huh. those squats, you know, Lucky oh, 13 was great. one we played at. Mm -hmm. I like those shows because I felt like, we were different. We were playing really slow winter. Mm -hmm. It was a different thing than those groups. But for some reason, our message was, we were kind of like into the same thing, but we didn't go down the, very, like the newspaper article type punk rock mm -hmm. lyrics. We were a little bit more into like, you know, mythological stuff and other stuff. So we tried mm -hmm. to twist the lyrics a little so it wouldn't be so generic. And um, we were kind of like a little going the wrong direction. We were going super slow and everyone was going really fast. But for mm -hmm. some reason, that, that population kind of... Mm -hmm. um, that worked in your favor yeah, also. It kind of, it kind yeah. of helped us with certain things. And also I like playing out at Sundance on Long Island because we got to play with the bigger groups like uh -huh. uh, Sepultura, Death, um, and all those other groups were people that we had the opportunity to play with. For some reason we had, got a little mm -hmm. bit of love out there too. Uh -huh. So we were kind of either in the city or we kind of played out there. But mm -hmm. we shortly, um, we made a demo. We got signed to a record label in New York called Future Shock. And then we... Um, released uh, Into Darkness and it just kind of meandered for a while. It didn't really mm -hmm. go anywhere. Like I said, the trend was going f everyone was playing fast, you know. Right, we were right. going slow, so it just seemed like there was not so much interest at the time. Mm -hmm. We had a, a little couple of people who kind of dug it. 
and then we just kind of just kind of like uh, fizzled, and we all kind of moved on to other projects. And mm -hmm. no one, I didn't really think about. It. I always loved the album. I thought it was a great a great record. We were lucky to have some interesting players. Tony Panisi, the keyboard player. Mm -hmm. I think we had spoken about him before. Right, right. And he's on the cut. We're going to play Godin. Yes, he's on. Mm -hmm. He's on the Godin cut. I, I chose that track because. Um, it's one where he shines. So mm -hmm. we were like 19 years old. I think it was like 18, mm -hmm. 1989 that record was complete. I think it came out in 90. And we had finished the record and we realized, um, me and some of the other members, it needed something else. I mean, I was already listening to King Crimson, Pink mm -hmm. Floyd, you know, Miles Davis, Bitches Brew was a big influence for me as well. And I was hearing all these different keyboard sounds. I'm like, man, it needs that for the space. It's so slow. Something's mm -hmm. got to fill in that that soundscape, you know, because mm -hmm. the, the hold chords for a really long time and needed something. So one of our friends worked at a record store and the manager was this person, Tony Panisi. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, you should meet the manager of our record store. And we met with him, we went in his basement and we were like, whoa, this guy had like Fender Rhodes, Arp String Ensembles, two mini Moogs, you know, mm -hmm. Hammond organ with Leslie Cabinets. And he just started hitting a couple of keys on there and we were like in awe, we were like, whoa. So we had, we had just finished the record, we brought him in the studio and we just says, yo, just put some stuff down. You know, we'll figure mm -hmm. it out later. You know, we'll see what elements. Mm -hmm. I never forget. We were sitting behind the, con you know, the console with the engineer, Greg Marshak, and he looks at me and the, and John, the uh, other member singer, and he goes, "Where did you guys find that guy? Because he was like a prof he was like a professional <laughs> uh -huh. musician, but he was uh -huh. also in his forties. He was like double right, our age. Right. So he was mm -hmm. a seasoned musician that was playing all through the sixties and seventies, and um, he brought a whole new element to the." to the whole recording that never would have existed if he wasn't there. So I think mm -hmm. he was a key key person. And I maintained friendship with him all those years since then. Mm -hmm. And he's actually in my new project. Uh, and I always mm -hmm. kind of- Yeah, what's the new project you're working on? I can't say the name just yet. Oh, okay. But I will-, I will Secret. It's a secret mm -hmm. right now. But um, we'll say it's loosely based um, on the song Godin, which okay. we're gonna play. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's a lot of the, players from winter minus a few who weren't mm -hmm. able to to record with us and um the new project is actually a continuation of where it would have went mm -hmm. from my perspective so I wrote, uh -huh. I wrote all the music arranged it mm -hmm. put all the players together uh financed and did the whole project myself awesome and um i had a lot of people who donated their time energy mm -hmm. and so on to it because they all believed in it um, I could mention the singer, it's Vas Callas, and mm -hmm. she played, she was in the Cycle Slots, Hansa Ungrero, um, mm -hmm. and she's just seasoned singer, man, and she kills it. Awesome. And we brought a female mm -hmm. to the, the super heavy sound mm -hmm. with Tony, mm -hmm. so I have some great players and various drummers who played with Winter throughout the years, and, mm -hmm. and I play guitar, bass, and did everything on. Awesome. And we'll get back to how you tracked that in the studio you built. When yeah, did uh, Woodard Field fit in? Were you doing BMX and music at the same time? Or did one turn into the other? Or how did that work out? Woodward, to me, was like a life-changing event. Mm -hmm. um, that was happening around the time I started to get into music. And mm -hmm. that was like around 1980. 384, I competed and trained at Woodward. So mm -hmm. I was like a BMX kid, freestyle kid. I had all kinds of quarter pipes set up on the street. Mm -hmm. I had lived on a dead end street at the time. So our, our place was like the place where all the daredevil kids kind of uh -huh. came and, you know, banged their uh -huh. head on the ground when they wiped out. So um, uh, no parental supervision. Yeah, right? No, yeah, <laughs> I don't think they really totally got what was going on. My dad was at work, I had no idea. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, so, so I had been reading BMX Plus, Thrasher Magazine, mm -hmm. and all those. And in the back of the magazine, there was like a thing about this camp where you can go and train with the pros. Mm -hmm. And I see pictures, right? And it had just opened. But Woodward had, prior to being a, a BMX and racing facility, was gymnastics. Uh -huh. And it had been established gymnastics place before that. And they had added this other element onto it. So I applied to do it, and I went there, and I competed there for two summers. But when I arrived at Woodward, you know, I was like a kid on Long Island thinking I was like a little badass, doing all my little jumps and racing locally, and, I, mm -hmm. and I, my stats were good with the ABA and stuff like that. But when I got to Woodward, it was like humbling, because I remember pulling in there, and as I'm pulling in there, I was like, whoa, these kids are really good. Because now it was like the kids from around the world, and the mm -hmm. country, mm -hmm. that were... They were all the little badasses around the world and country. Now mm -hmm. they're all at this one place. So it humbled me big time. Like I went there thinking, mm -hmm. I'm going to show these guys how to do it. And uh -huh. then I got there and I was like, whoa, these guys. And then, you know, you're 13, 14 years old and you're looking up to the, the, the pros. Like you're the guys you're looking at the magazines are, the, are your, your trainers and your coaches. And mm -hmm. they're speaking to you like you're a young little athlete and they're guiding you through your way. So that was the racing part. But the camp was, what was cool about it was you had these gymnasts. Mm -hmm. And you had these BMX kids. So the BMX kids were like your rough, rugged scabs, cuts all over them, mm -hmm. cuts on their face, and also. Mm -hmm. And then the gymnasts broken were, teeth, broken teeth, yeah. all kinds of stuff, <laughs> you know. And then the gymnasts were a little more refined athletes. But they would mm -hmm. so they would hang out. You would wake up in the morning and you'd be in Pennsylvania, in the Amish section, and there were crazy hills. So you train. Mm -hmm. You'd wake up and you'd ride a BMX bike through these mountains, one gear. Mm -hmm. So that was your. You'd wake up. That was just your warm. Then you'd have breakfast. Then you'd have warm up. Then you'd hit the track. And you train, then you have lunch, and then you have some time for yourself, train again. And then at nighttime, they would have different scheduled training for different activities. You'd have time to hang out with the gymnasts mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Because, you know, obviously it was all boys in the BMX thing, right? I mean, right, It was right. one girl in the whole thing. But the gymnasts were all girls. So you want to intertwine mm -hmm. with, the, with the other community that mm -hmm. was there. So next thing you know, you're like, you're going in the, in like the big, it's like an airplane hangar with kids right. doing flips into big pits mm -hmm. with balls with with to land. You could land on your head yeah. nothing would happen. I started hanging out with some of these gymnasts. And I was like, whoa. I was like, I'm like, wow, everyone here is like a super athlete. Like these are the kids that from everywhere that excelled in sports. Right. So mm -hmm. it was an enlightening um, uh, place to go to, and it wasn't a traditional sport. So you, it wasn't like playing football or baseball, which those are team sports. These were like individual sports where mm -hmm. you're competing against other individuals, like mm -hmm. racing. But like, also against yourself. But against it's yourself. Also about you your own growth right. and your personal records and stuff Absolutely. like that. Yeah. yeah. So there was... Mm -hmm. That was that was a really important place for me to go to at that time, and it did intertwine with the music because, you know, all the people that were there for the for my side of it were all reading Thrasher magazine and Maximum Rock and Roll, and they were reading all those. So they were all into you know punk and hardcore, more aggressive mm -hmm. kind of music because it kind of went with the sport, like the X Games is today. Right. Right. So the X mm -hmm. Games basically born at Woodward. Mm -hmm. So that's basically like the training ground. Um, for anyone who's in the X Games, I just happened mm -hmm. to be the first generation to go there, that went there, and mm -hmm. um, and did BMX and that BMX sort of and racing. Yeah, right. I mean, I look the at the extreme young, sports stuff. The extreme there. sports, yeah. Right. I mean, my era mm -hmm. was like you know Mike Dominguez and all those guys, freestyle mm -hmm. guys, and you know they would get maybe a foot or a couple of feet out of the bowl, and you'd be like, oh, right. that's sick. Now they're doing like multiple flips right. and stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the level at which the athletes are competing now is mm -hmm. far superior. Well, grew the sport right. grew. The I sport mean, grew, right. it's, it's like any other mm -hmm. sport, right? You go, you go to the I Olympics. mean, if you think back, it's probably, you know, seeing 
the foam pits and stuff. And so, well, can I bring my bike in here? What if we we did? What if we put a bike right by the foam pit? Let me, let me tell you something. Uh, we did do that. We weren't supposed mm-hmm. to do because they didn't want of grease course, on the right. on the things. But mm-hmm. there were times at night we, where we were like, yo, someone keep a lookout. We went in there. We jumped in. We were totally not allowed to do that right, stuff. Right. But yeah, no, it was definitely now. Now I think it's pretty standard for letting those guys jump and use those pits for right, that. Right, right. They, they have really... other camps specifically for Absolutely. that with pools and everything. Yeah. So we're going to play Godin now. You want to tell us anything about an intro for Godin before we uh, hit the play button? Um, Godin is um, a great representation of what winter was in its fullest, as far as I'm concerned, really. Um, and it probably represents my new project became the template of where I wanted mm-hmm. to go with the new material since everyone seemed to really like winter and became this cult iconic thing which I feel blessed mm-hmm. that, that that is because we all have great records in our record collection that, right, that, right. that group is great and they're just in oblivion you know they're just mm-hmm. whatever but um, people really seem to like that song and I, that was always one of my favorites as well so um, yeah I guess check out Go it has the keyboards on it it has mm-hmm. multiple different keyboard sounds and I felt it was the that in the intro to the album with the pinnacle of that record. Awesome. And here's Winter with Godin. Feel 
we're back. So we talked about the BMX and the music stuff. How did you get into massage therapy? You know, that, that does seem like a, a bit of a, a departure. It, it, was a, it was a changing of the guard for me going back to school for massage therapy and, mm -hmm. and like the healing arts, I'll call them, because it was, Swedish Institute is more than just massage for me. It's a philosophy of um, teaching medicine from a different angle or, mm -hmm. you know, um, ways you could help people, but from a lot of mothers, because Swedish Institute was more than massage. It was acupuncture, it was exercise mm -hmm. science, it has nursing mm -hmm. now, it has all other things, physical culture. You know, I, I don't even remember when Swedish Institute started, but it was mm -hmm. in uh, yeah, 1916. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it has a long mm -hmm. history, Swedish Institute. Mm -hmm. So you were going to a more traditional college? You were studying? Yes, I, I originally was going to school as a communication arts major, and I followed my older brother just because I didn't know what I wanted to do. What happened was after Winter had put the album out, it kind of seemed to be no interest. I started another project with um, John and Roy from Nausea, which mm -hmm. was one of those Anaco bands in New York. Mm -hmm. Their group had kind of moved on. Winter kind of moved on. We got together and we recorded a Thorn record, Bitter Potion. Mm -hmm. We got signed to Roadrunner, which was the perfect label. Everything looked like it was on, on the up and up, and we were gonna just really going to kick some ass, mm -hmm. right? And then my father was diagnosed with a brain cancer, glioblastoma, in a very advanced wow. stage. So life went from a very, um, uh, you know, simple, carefree, you know, on the mm -hmm. rock. I was working. I was putting car radios in. That's what my job was, car stereo installer. And it went. And I was playing music at night. It was mm -hmm. like a simple life, you know. I'm going to school at nighttime. And then all of a sudden, it went to whoa. My dad's sick. My family needs me. Mm -hmm. So I moved back home. And it was really humbling. Uh, my father was diagnosed and passed away in six months. So wow. the whole family got mm -hmm. turned upside down. I kind of went home and helped my mom out. And it was tough putting my you know, chemotherapy and, you know, what a lot of us have to mm -hmm. do. I was young, too. You know, I was mm -hmm. only like 20 years old when that happened. But during that time period, um, I let the music go. And I says, oh, I had my time. And I moved on. And I was kind of just in flux. Um, the car stereo place I worked at was also worked for my father's business. So mm -hmm. I lost my job, my father, all these different things. I was kind of a little depressed. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I met a girl, her name was Paige Vosper. She was just mm -hmm. finishing up at the new center on Long Island as for, to be a massage therapist. And she was a good friend of mine. And I, I was like her test dummy. Mm -hmm. So we were friends and she was practicing mm -hmm. her strokes. And, you know, she had her flash cards with her anatomy stuff uh -huh. on. You know, she, uh -huh. was, she was in the trenches. She was into it, yeah. She was just finishing mm -hmm. up. And one time her back was bothering her, and I says, hey, I could, let me work on you. And all I did was mimic what she did. She says, hey, man, you're pretty good at this. And I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. And she says, why don't you go to the Swedish Institute? They're having, like, an open house. And I was like, I had nothing going on. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was like, I'm going to go. So I went to the open house, and it was kind of a weird time for massage therapy during that mm -hmm. time period. You can remember, I think that was about 19... 97 and 98 mm -hmm. so massage mm -hmm. it was going from being called a masseuse to a massage therapist so you know i remember telling my mother hey i'm gonna drop out of college i'm gonna go to massage mm -hmm. therapy school what are you crazy you're gonna be a masseuse mm -hmm. and i says i says i'm gonna do this and this is what i want to do so i i went to swedish institute and it was a that was an enlightening experience because i was around all these people that had this one goal that they want to like help people and they were doing it in a way that had nothing to do with the traditional medical system. They were not trying to be medical doctors, they were not trying mm -hmm. to do anything, but there were acupuncturists there and different philosophies mm -hmm. of medicine going on there. So I went to Swedish and I completed the massage therapy program 
and then I completed the exercise science program because mm -hmm. I was already kind of illegitimately kind of training a lot of my clients. I was already mm -hmm. like relatively somewhat of an athlete. I always stayed right, fit, even right. during mm -hmm. my whole life. Mm -hmm. I was always active, whether it be snowboarding, skiing, cycling, or whatever. It was always part of my life. So I went back and did the exercise science, and I kind of singed those two together. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how I found Swedish Institute. Just mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, like everyone, most young people, mm -hmm. not everyone knows exactly what they want to do when they graduate right, high school, right? right? Absolutely. You, know, they, you have to mm -hmm. bounce around a little bit and mm -hmm. have a couple of jobs and you hate. How did your, uh, how did your mother eventually come around to this? Or she, she came to the open house she, with you, right? She actually did come. She thought I was, uh -huh. she kind of thought I was like a little nuts. Uh-huh. She was in a flux stage, you know, my mom was a new widow at the time, too, right, so right. she was going through some mm -hmm. life changes for herself. She had just lost her husband, I lost my dad. So, you know, it was kind of like, you know, just be happy mm -hmm. at that point in your life, right? You know, like, what are you going to do? So mm -hmm. I tried it. What was the worst thing that was going to happen? I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. I would try something different at that mm -hmm. point, right? So you life could even go back to your other college. I could have went back and it was so, communication right, arts. Right. It was something like that, mm -hmm. or I would have went into something else. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so that was kind of, I found Swedish, but, mm -hmm. but it resonated with me, Swedish mm -hmm. Institute, for some reason, you know? Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I knew that the standard medical field, the way my father this thing was dealt with, I w if it was today, I wouldn't even do it that way. I would mm -hmm. probably go, maybe go about mm -hmm. things differently, because I'm mm -hmm. more aware, and the world's a different place, too. You right. can research things. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the health challenges you've had lately, and how maybe that education sort of influenced your approach to taking care of yourself. So what happened with that? Oh, so, um, <laughs> so I was a massage therapist doing training, and everything was kind of, you know, like two decades of just, mm -hmm. you know, being a massage therapist and doing training and so on. and. I started to put music back in my life, and I did a project with a group called Serpentine Path, which was like a, people from Electric Wizard, Unearthly Trance, and there were people that were in relatively similar. They're probably the next generation after winter. Mm -hmm. So they, um, um, they had asked me, they had done a record, their first record, I really liked it, and I became friendly with uh, one of the members, Jane Newman. And they said, hey, would you be interested in playing with us? And I was like, they were... I was like, sure, I really like your stuff. So I kind of started doing music again. We'd already been doing the winter reunion shows. This point, mm -hmm. winter had become like some cult favorite thing. And we did a record release party, and it was a place that was really small. And my mm -hmm. head was really close to the crash cymbal. The drummer was a hard hitter. Mm -hmm. And I had no escape to get out of this little corner of the stage. There was nowhere mm -hmm. for me to step. It was really small, and you had like mm -hmm. five guys on the stage, you know? And I walked out of that night, and my ears were like a tea kettle. Mm -hmm. It had been like the. Uh, last event, you know, years of headphones, loud rehearsals. Mm -hmm. This was like the uh, straw that broke the camel's back, so to say. And I walked out and it was like a tea kettle. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? This is, I don't mm -hmm. know what this is. So it's scaring me. Mm -hmm. And like worse than the typical ringing, because we all leave shows and it's like you're ringing, you know, that night and by you can fall asleep and the next morning it's gone. Yeah, I've gone but to this, see. You could tell this was different. This was different. Mm -hmm. this, this was like. I've been to Motorhead, I've been to Man of War, mm -hmm. I've walked out of there, have a little bit of ringing and stuff, and I had heard about this from other musicians, mm -hmm. and I, I was, I was kind of like, eh, not me, you know, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it was like a tea kettle, and I, it, it was causing PTS, I was not sleeping at night, mm -hmm. I mean, you laid in bed, and it was like this meh noise, it was mm -hmm. like unbelievable, so I started to get sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. I was developing PTS, I was really stressed out, 
I had lost a lot of weight. I was just miserable. I almost got, got a divorce because I was couldn't be. I was not mm -hmm. sleeping. I get up at five. I get up at four forty-five in the morning. I'm like rocking at six a.m. and I walk mm -hmm. in at eight thirty. I'm pretty high energy person, mm -hmm. and you know if you don't fall asleep till two thirty in the morning from exhaustion, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden I was getting up and I was walking around New York City doing the death walks. We walk around just for ambient noise because you have cars or whatever, mm -hmm. and I. Walked to the 59th Street Bridge, and at one point I said, "I don't rectify this. I'm going to jump off this bridge." I was mm -hmm. I was getting that bad, mm -hmm. so I had met um, Joey Loads, which was who played on my record, who's a um, chiropractor, mm -hmm. uh, does acupuncture as, as well, and he had had a problem with his hearing, mm -hmm. where he had had a heart operation. They had given him gentamicin, and it destroyed his hearing. Really? So and he him, got tinnitus from that, from yes, the medication? Yeah, medication, wow. some, certain mm -hmm. antibiotics, and gentamicin, mm -hmm. NSAIDs, SSRIs. Mm -hmm. Those drugs are really bad for, a, you know, mm -hmm. neuro, for the cochlea, cochlea and, the, and, mm -hmm. and neuro stuff that goes on in the brain. And they affect all the GABA and glutamate mm -hmm. levels and stuff. So he, he had shared a couple of things with me that were helpful herbally, because his mm -hmm. wife is an Indian and acupuncturist as well. He was really helpful, and I slowly, I had already seen every doctor and given doctors money in envelopes because they don't take my medical insurance. Mm -hmm. I was suffering at that point and barely living life mm -hmm. and just hanging on to everything. It was really life-changing. And then all of a sudden, I, Joey had mentioned a couple of things that were helping with him, certain herbal things, just to calm me. He's like, listen, it's not going to cure you, but it'll be like putting a blanket mm -hmm. over your central nervous system to just bring things down a little bit so you could sleep, because you got to sleep. I wasn't mm -hmm. sleeping. And this, yeah. this, this went on for like three years at this high level. And I said, you know what? I got to like completely rectify my life. And I had also read an article where they had compared tinnitus to auditory epilepsy, which was, mm -hmm. this was a game changer for me because I had been training a woman named um, Sharon Lowenheim and her husband, Charles Mobs, runs age-related diseases at Mount Sinai and he mm -hmm. does all the research and his research is on dementia, Alzheimer's, ALS, and you know, just basic brain degenerative mm -hmm. diseases. And I said, Charles, what do you think of this? And he goes, you know, it kind of, it, it's a weird way to compare neural overfiring of the brain, different section of the brain, mm -hmm. but essentially there's some very strong associations. Yeah. Or, he, yeah. Goes, he goes, I mm -hmm. treat all these diseases and my research is on the ketogenic diet. He goes, the ketogenic diet for 50 years has been used to treat epilepsy. The problem mm -hmm. with it is it's a very strict diet to, to do that. And that's why they try to use certain, you know, like gabapentin and different types of things for epilepsy because to do the diet is, is mm -hmm. really, really difficult. Well, this is what his research was all about. Uh -huh. So I switched over to a straight up epilepsy ketogenic diet. And I had also read one of Dave Asprey's books and one of Dr. Mercola's books mm -hmm. and on brain health. And I started doing the Bulletproof coffee. I mm -hmm. completely changed my diet, went to a ketogenic paleolithic style diet. Mm -hmm. And Along with the uh, medium chain triglycerides and adding all of that in I, I, as an extra supplement. I mean, basically, I put three to four tablespoons of MCT oil in my coffee. I throw some grass-fed organic ghee in there. I throw some coconut oil. The bottom of this thing <laughs> is basically a thing of you know healthy fats that are in there. Blend mm -hmm. up with organic coffee, and um, I would drink that every morning. And I would keep myself. I would do a 16-hour intermittent fast and then mm -hmm. I would do the coffee and I would do that and then all of a sudden I had a couple of other great effects. Mm -hmm. I all of a sudden was almost 50 years old and I was dropped down to athletic levels of fat mm -hmm. fat levels 
and my overall health started getting better. My hair stopped going gray. I, um, a lot of other things started happening, and I noticed that tinnitus started coming down tremendously. Mm-hmm. And I just totally embraced that whole biohacking community. I mean, mm-hmm. I consider myself unlicensed biohacker. And um, ketogenic diet, paleolithic, kind of a little bit of a slash in between. Um, no wheat, bran, barley, rice, corn. I make all my own food, and I just, I just embrace the biohacker community. Mm-hmm. And I was like, nothing else was there for me. There was nothing mm-hmm. else that was going to help me, and pharmacopoeia was not going to work for me either because those things, they might help you initially, but in the long term, mm-hmm. you can have other issues with them. So um, I switched over. I never really turned back. I, started, I felt like my aging was slowing down, so I kept advancing. And I also... The science of all the stuff I learned in Swedish, like Krebs cycle and all these mm-hmm. different other things, like mitochondrial mm-hmm. energy and NAD levels and glutamate and GABA receptors mm-hmm. and how they work and what foods enhance those and which ones, you know, mm-hmm. upregulate, upregulate and downregulated. And I started downregulating glutamate and upregulating GABA at certain points in the day and stayed away from certain foods. And those things dramatically helped the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. But you had a better understanding of it because of your background and Absolutely. your education. Absolutely. Yeah. Swedish Institute mm-hmm. definitely gave me the prerequisites to not be scared to jump into this. Because mm-hmm. at some point, you have, to, you have to heal thyself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you can go to a million doctors to kind of get their view, but they're not inside your body, and they can't do the evaluation you could do yourself. So Swedish Institute gave me the confidence to to sift through all this data that was there. Mm-hmm. And also, all my friends, because I went to Swedish... As I became older, my friends were not so much musicians and people I grew up with, but mm-hmm. they were like my peers. They were the chiropractors that I would send you know, clients to. They would mm-hmm. send me clients. And they became all my friends. All my friends were acupuncturists, mm-hmm. chiropractors, chiropractors you know, even some medical doctors. and friends. Right, complementary and alternative health stuff. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I had shared different information. Hey, what do you think about it? You know more about this neuroscience. Like Charles, perfect mm-hmm. example. When I met Charles Mobs, and I do an interview on my, on my channel... Mm-hmm. Um, with him, and we talk about this a little bit. I was able to communicate with him on a higher level because I had had the prerequisites of, mm-hmm. of Swedish Institute, and um, and that made me more compassionate mm-hmm. after this whole thing. It's there now. I, I'm managing it. I could get. I got back to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Changed. So, how did you? You know, you're working on a new music project now, but you have tinnitus. So, how did you work that out? <laughs> that, that, this, it's interesting because you're not doing acoustic stuff, I imagine. No. Right? So, so that's actually an interesting question. No one's really asked much about the recording of the new record. So, because I have hearing loss, it was really important to isolate me. I cannot be in the room with just a live drummer. Mm-hmm. So, Tony, the key- keyboard player, uh, Tony Pinisi. We were all bummed when this happened, right? I mean, the winter was getting ready to do a lot of like reunion shows. And mm-hmm. we're supposed to play like the Black Sabbath show in France and stuff like that. That last show they did, and everyone was really bummed about it. So we at the one of the last rehearsals, and I said, I can't do the show. It was Hellfest. I, mm-hmm. I can't do it, you know. And they were like, Oh, really? And he's, so they were like, This is the end. And I said to Tony. I, I just threw it out there. I said, listen, if we build an ISO booth in here and I could be the boy in the plastic bubble and basically a soundproof thing and I could look through the glass and see you guys, I'm ready to rock. We could write music. We mm-hmm. could write a new record. I don't know if I'll be able to tour, but let's take one step at a time. Who knows? Mm-hmm. By the time we're done with this record, meanwhile, we're recording this for the last four years. It's been mm-hmm. going on. Every time a new song, we go record it. He says, you know what? Build the booth. Call my friend Freddie up. Built the booth. ISO booth for me. I invested money. I, I 
took everyone's equipment out of there. I bought a drum kit. I had my guitar amp, bass amp, set everything up, mic'd everything up, left it set there, and we recorded this album over a four-year period. I was the boy in the plastic bubble. Everyone would come in. I'd play with the drummers. Mm -hmm. Guitar amp, different room, drums in the room, staring, playing it old school, and just track the record. And we just did a song like every two months, and we locked into it, tracked it, and moved on. Mm -hmm. And we did that over that time period. And that was the only way to record it. Um, thank God, Tony was a godsend, as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. He opened his home up to us to do that. And um, that was how we recorded the album. As far as playing in the future, we'll have to see. You mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of in-ear technology. And if I played, played out again, um, I would do it the modern way. I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it with the earplugs. I would do the molded in-ear monitors uh -huh. and everyone in the group would have to have that so there's no stage volume. If you go mm -hmm. to a modern concert today, oh, right. there's right. really no stage volume because everyone mm -hmm. does that. The amp doesn't even have to be allowed. And you can hear everything better mm -hmm. anyway. So I'd be mm -hmm. able to protect my hearing. So that's a possibility in the future of mm -hmm. possibly touring for the new record. Where are people going to be able to hear the new record? So I want to make sure you plug your website and your training and your massage, but also where they're going to be able to find the record. Um, the records, well, we have, we have uh, three different labels that are actually mm -hmm. really interested in it. We're just, right now, the reason I can't mention the name of it and some of the things is because mm -hmm. we're trying to sort out who do I want to release it. Mm -hmm. you know, they're all mm -hmm. actually giving some pretty nice offers. So mm -hmm. um, just want to find the best home for it. Mm -hmm. um, it'll probably be announced by this summer. Roy Mayorga is actually mm -hmm. mixing it at the moment out in L.A. Roy Mayorga was from Nausea, Stone Sour. Mm -hmm. Sepultura, I think he played with. Mm -hmm. He's played with everyone. He's just a brilliant musician and now a recording engineer. And so, where can people get in touch with you for training and massage? Then, what's so the website I would say, again? Yeah, I would say my my website, Pinnacle Fitness and Wellness. dot mm -hmm. um, com. Um, and you're on your Pinnacle Fitness and Wellness on Facebook also? Yep, on Facebook. I have a YouTube channel where I mm -hmm. basically just interview healthcare providers. I don't really do much fitness mm -hmm. stuff on those. And Pinnacle is the name of the uh, YouTube channel also? Yes. Pinnacle. Pinnacle Fitness and A&D Wellness. We are here with David Ganulin, the CEO and founder of Kettlebell Concepts. He is a certified Pilates instructor and holds multiple certifications as a personal trainer, including the USAW club coach. He has many media and writing credits and was the first Kettlebell instructor at Equinox and has a master's in teaching curriculum and curriculum development from the University of Rochester. And he speaks Japanese. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Vince. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you are a musician as well as a fitness entrepreneur. How did you get into music originally? I'd use the word musician carefully. But okay. I, <laughs> I grew up uh, in a musical family. Dad went to Juilliard uh, for jazz trumpet, so he got a full scholarship. Uh, that's a, probably another story in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And mom was a music teacher. She went to Fredonia, taught, you know, junior high school music and elementary mm -hmm. your whole life so my brother and i kind of grew up around it awesome yeah. and your brother your brother your <laughs> brother plays he's a, he's a really good drummer uh -huh. with a band called amara floyd little little, little oh, shout awesome. out to amara floyd yeah. Uh -huh. yeah and what was your instrument clarinet and sax mostly clarinet uh -huh. but you know if you want to be cool you have to learn the sax too right? uh -huh. absolutely <laughs> but i started with clarinet and kind of played all through college and that sort mm -hmm. of thing yeah that's great yeah 
Then how did you make this transition from coming from a very musical family to going into fitness and entrepreneurship and things like that? What was that journey like? The very short version is that I, I didn't want to be a professional musician, so I majored in English, secondary English education in mm. college, and I always knew that I wanted to get out of Dodge and live abroad. Went to Japan, lived in Japan from 94 to 2001-ish, and uh, and while I was there, I got I had studied martial arts for many years, mm -hmm. and and that's where I came across what are similar to kettlebells uh, mm -hmm. in Japanese traditional karate, right? So, um, okay, kind of experience with that. They were kind of cool. Come back in 2001, first dot com crash. Worked for a company called Wolf dot com, the uh -huh. best of the web for men. Still have the screenshots, right? Uh -huh. And and it was all I was the health and fitness and outdoors editor, mm -hmm. and then there was you know a movie guy, and then there was a entertainment whatever, mm -hmm. um, and it was pre-Maxim, pre-Gear, pre-FHM. Mm -hmm. So it, it was at that time that I had cover, I was covering the, the fitness beat, mm -hmm. you know, pre-boutique studios and all that sort of stuff and uh, got into Pilates because I thought it was a bunch of crap and I wanted to debunk it, right? Uh -huh. So I wanted to, co I covered it, but then I started studying Pilates and, and Suzanne Jordan, shout out to Suzanne, who's a personal trainer, a, a PT now, a physical therapist, mm -hmm. said, uh, yeah, you should, you know, become a Pilates instructor. And it was there that kind of my journey into fitness started. Right? So you were writing an article about Pilates, right. not really buying into it. Right. You took some classes yes. and then that, that changed was it. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I always knew that I wanted to be a better writer. So I got ACE and I got, um, you know, a few others, USAW, because I mm -hmm. wanted to be a better writer and editor for mm -hmm. my section. And and, uh -huh. and and so I wanted to get the, the credentials, but I had mm -hmm. no intention, quite frankly, at the time of going into it, mm -hmm. of going into it. But knowing, not the jargon, but I mean, we could call it jargon, right. but knowing what trainers do, what yeah. the language is, understanding the anatomy and everything would it make helps. you a better writer, absolutely. I, I would think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you would hope that, you know, more writers would really study the subject they're writing on, not just writing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did you become a Pilates instructor then? That's a pretty long pathway usually. Yeah, um, Suzanne and I worked and, and did, you know, I had to go through X number of classes, you know, the way it, the way it was. It was when mm -hmm. Romana Krasinowska was still in Drago's gym here in the city. Uh -huh. uh, and, and flash forward, uh, they were still doing the 12-day intensive after you finished your prerequisite mm -hmm. requirements, and they don't do that anymore. That was mm -hmm. at the tail end of the lawsuit with mm -hmm. Sean Gallagher, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so the lawsuit for who could use the Pilates name. Right, right. and Michael and Tone uh, were my master instructors. Shout out to Shout Michael out and Tone. Shout out to Michael and Tone, and I'm still friendly with those guys, mm -hmm. you know, and they're still doing their thing, and I was the only guy in the entire class of, uh -huh. of, of, of women. Uh, and then I did my hours, and, and it really... He, but they were funny, because I think we talked about this in the past. They mm -hmm. At the time, I, was I started doing this kettlebell thing that no one had heard of, mm -hmm. right? Because I wrote about it for Woof.com. Like, oh, maybe there's something here. Maybe this is going to mm -hmm. be a thing. Pre-CrossFit, pre-everything. And it... You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're going you're gonna to make a business out of this kettlebell thing. Mm -hmm. And I said, you're crazy. I'm not an entrepreneur. No way, right? And, and, no, no, you, you seem to be talking about it quite a bit. We think, we think you're probably going to go in that direction. And uh -huh. 
to this day, they still tease me about it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So kettlebells weren't a thing. No. You, you know, you had this experience with the Japanese version of kettlebells. Right. And then you went to a kettlebell training with Steve Maxwell yeah. and a bunch of these other guys, the right? Very first, the very first RKC. Uh-huh. The very first RKC, mm-hmm. yeah. And then you talked to them about... A possible business idea? Yeah, uh, I was 100% transparent and mm-hmm. said, hey, I think there's something here, especially on the business-to-business side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they basically said, thanks, but no thanks. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I said, well, I'm going to go my, do my own thing in New York City. And, and, uh, and they wished me, genuinely wished me luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only later on, after we got some traction, that, uh-huh. you know, things maybe, they weren't all, all happy about it anymore. Right, yeah. right. So... You started teaching Pilates. Yeah, I was doing mat classes uh-huh. all over Equinox. Uh-huh. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then how did you start to bring in kettlebells to Equinox? How did that go? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I, they were literally the last stop on my sort of sales train. I mean, mm-hmm. as I was you know, making money and trying to live, uh, I was humping kettlebells around. Right, mm-hmm. the power systems perform better. No one had them. It was just you know one company at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and and really it was you want to swing these iron weights around on our gorgeous wood floors? Get mm-hmm. out! I mean, really legit. Uh-huh. People were either polite and said no, you're crazy, uh-huh. or impolite and said you know it's There's the door. Right, it's <laughs> the same as dumbbells. It's the same as barbells. It's bullshit. It's a fad. Get out! Right, mm-hmm. and it was only Dr. Paul Juris, then the head of Equinox Fitness Training Institute, mm-hmm. who there were actually two. Or three others, but Paul was the big break, you know, mm-hmm. and said, "Yeah, kettlebells—they've been around for hundreds of years. Russian, yeah, let's 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 do something with them." And then he had introduced me to Adam Cronin, then mm-hmm. the head PT manager at their then flagship Greenwich Avenue Equinox. Right. He became, mm-hmm. you know, very heavily involved and said, "Yeah, this is this is amazing. You know, mm-hmm. let's let let's start doing semi-private classes." So I was the first instructor. Adam was d- there with me, mm-hmm. you know, and we were we had to do a sort of double sale. We had to first convince the trainers that this was a thing mm-hmm. and there's history here and it's legitimate mm-hmm. and get the sciences going and then, you know, do work with the customers, mm-hmm. the clients. What what was the where were the trainers coming from at that point? Um, I mean, what was their perspective on it? Cuz you know, now um, kettlebells it, are ubiquitous, yeah, yeah. but back then where were they coming from? I think the ones that were, they were, many were genuinely curious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, like, what, what is this? What, what? There, there was a skeptical, mm-hmm. you know, sort of query about it, right? Then there were the others, you know, that, that had been around in the game for a long time, maybe a little bit older, maybe mm-hmm. the grizzled veteran, and, and there were many high-end big deal trainers who mm-hmm. maybe own their own places, I won't mm-hmm. mention names, right, that, right. that were like, no, nope, this is bullshit, You're, this is crap, you know, it's the same mm-hmm. as dumbbells and barbells, no way. But, but the trainers, for the most part, especially at Equinox, because Paul just, the EFTI system is, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, it was graduate level coursework, you know, and because Paul instilled that, that element of, of, of questioning and, and mm-hmm. uh, true academic rigor, um, they were really curious. So mm-hmm. with the help of Adam and, you know, et cetera, we, we, we got going. Mm-hmm. 
So when when did you guys do your first kettlebell concepts training? How did that come about? That when was, did you decide hmm. let's go B two B and really get that going? It was it was always I, I never wanted to be a consumer facing brand, right? Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to go down because I knew enough about the industry, too much mm -hmm. about the industry to ever want to be that guy in the in the front right mm -hmm. it was always kind of b2b right and i also knew at the time that the kettlebell couldn't be patented despite now there's right. all these ridiculous things out there but good luck selling making a, a healthy margin on selling mm -hmm. equipment and you know so i it was always education plus mm -hmm. that fit with my background so i want right. to say 2002 maybe or, or three mm -hmm. was the first KBC level one instructor and Adam, you know, brilliant, brilliant. So he, you know, trained under Paul, et cetera, and, and had multiple certifications. So he actually put the first book, uh, level one manual together mm -hmm. along with myself a little bit, but he was, you know, he mm -hmm. was the driving force there. And you did that first one at Equinox? Yeah, but, mm -hmm. many, many of them were at Equinox right. in the beginning. Right. And, and we, had, mm -hmm. we had made them a bunch of money because we were doing semi-private small group training, mm -hmm. which at the time didn't exist. Right, now that's all over it's the over. fitness trends and yeah. everything. But at that point, there was group exercise and personal training, but there was no boot camp, middle ground, Definitely small not. group type of training. Definitely not. I had to mm -hmm. write my copy. My, I wrote the copy for the for the rate for the card. Mm -hmm. You know, I did. I basically did everything. You know, mm -hmm. they they promoted us to their credit. You know, because because right. no one else mm -hmm. had kettlebells, and I certainly leveraged that press. You know, mm -hmm. that they gave us, and then we kind of got out there. You know, right. Yeah. So now you're working for Integrity Squared. Yeah. So you kettlebell concepts is still running doing well and yep. running, but you've moved away. You have somebody working on that, Tyler managing Valencia. the website exactly. Yep. Yep. And what sort of work are you doing with Integrity Square? What does Integrity Square do? That's run by a guy named Pete Moore, who mm -hmm. who has been in. He he actually trademarked the term Halo, Health, Active Lifestyle, Outdoor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he used to be a, an investment banker, right? He started out. Mm -hmm. he, he's a real entrepreneur himself. And kind of got out of that world and and formed Integrity Square, which is basically a boutique investment bank. So they help people mm -hmm. buy gyms, they help people sell gyms, uh, they do consulting. There's a good number of you know C level executives that mm -hmm. that you know will parachute into a particular group and help them out or whatever. So it's a, a pretty interesting hybrid, you know, mm -hmm. of, of of services that they offer. And it's it's I'm the VP of communications, so I work mm -hmm. on Halo Talks, which you've been on, right? Um, right. The, the the podcast, mm -hmm. and that's really cool for entrepreneurs too, because had had I known about Halo Talks when I was trying to start Kettlebell Concepts, mm -hmm. it, it, there's so much valuable information there. Honest, I'm saying that. Truly, mm -hmm. not just because I work for the guy, but I truly like he's an educator as well. He used to teach this stuff right mm -hmm. in college. He did some finance classes. classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I respect his 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 uh, passion for teaching, mm -hmm. right? Because most most fitness people fall into very specific categories. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they're the trainer that wants to leave and start their own place, or mm -hmm. very very specific and. And he's out there, you know, trying to educate people. And it's pretty cool, mm -hmm. you know. Awesome. Yeah. And Not the standard banker type, you know. Quote, right, unquote. right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Vulture capitalist or whatever. Vul <laughs> that's, a, that's a cool one. I heard that somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, you also, you know, being an entrepreneur and being in communications, you 
do a lot of marketing, etc. And you also have a side thing you do called Local Mobile. Yeah, yeah. I started that, mm -hmm. you know, as a passion project, right? Mm -hmm. While I was in between jobs, you know how it is in New York, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're up and sometimes, you know, you're hustling your mm -hmm. butt off. Well, you're always hustling your butt off. But right, right. Local Mobile, thanks for mentioning, it, you know, that's small and medium-sized businesses, bars, restaurants, retail shops, etc. And, and, you know, I kind of pared my services down. We just do, you know, text message marketing or social powered Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. you know, where you log in with your email, whatever. And so I help these guys because they're the ones that need the help the most, right? Mm -hmm. On, uh, you know, eventually once they start to like and trust you, they're like, hey, can you advise us on, on our emailing? And can you recommend for someone mm -hmm. for social media? And what is this whole Facebook ads thing? That to me, I've been doing this for 15 years now, mm -hmm. right? I used to be a CMO of a nonprofit, you know, a company called mm -hmm. Dance New Amsterdam. You know, I, I worked my way up all while running KBC on the back end, right? right Until KBC right. became mm -hmm. full time. So, but this local mobile thing, you know, it's fun. It's fun, mm -hmm. and you're genuinely helping people who who appreciate it. Once, mm -hmm. once you can get to the decision maker, right? Right. You know. Right. But the, uh, Starbucks doesn't need any money. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm. any need any of my help, right? Pratt, right. all these guys—they don't need me. It's mm -hmm. the it's the small guys that that need me, and that's mm -hmm. who I kind of enjoy helping, and and it's 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 rewarding. Once, like, oh, you know, you make them a database of text message you know, opt-ins mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they have 300 people who have opted in and you know, now I'm a genius, but okay, well, I'm not a genius, but they're making money, right. you know? So right. it, it, it kind of mm -hmm. feels good, you know? And how, you know, you've been doing this a while, obviously right. KBC came up with Facebook and now Instagram is big yeah. and texting has always been there. And we certainly see statistics that most website visits or a large proportion of website visits and Facebook visits and stuff are coming from mobile devices. Oh yeah. So We've turned how, the corner. Yeah. Yeah. So how does, how does the texting fit into that? Very carefully. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you and I are old enough to remember back in the day when, you know, nightclub promoters specifically would just mm -hmm. spray and pray and whatever. Mm -hmm. There was no laws prohibiting that and there was no opting out from our little flip phones. Right, right. right. You know, but, mm -hmm. but now the law is called a telecommunication. Tele Telecommunication Consumer Protection Act, I want mm -hmm. TCPA, and it has real serious teeth, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's really all about giving the client, you know, like, like per, we had a, a couple of gyms using us too, mm -hmm. you know, where where they would the personal trainers may text their clients very simple tips, right? Mm -hmm. Or or oh hey, your group X class is rescheduled or whatever the case right. may be. Mm -hmm. But it has to be done with a they have to opt in, they have mm -hmm. to go to their phone and text whatever to one two three four five to opt in, um, or it has to be very clear, you know, that mm -hmm. they're opting in, and you can't you can't bother them too much because mm -hmm. once they opt out, you've lost them. Mm -hmm. It's very, like, you know, what is the quote? You know, with great power comes great responsibility. Right, totally right. nerding out right now. Mm -hmm. But it's true because there is nothing more powerful than sending a text to a, a client mm -hmm. or a prospective client. But you have to do it very, very Right. You don't judiciously. want to abuse the privilege. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And now with the technology, you can, can you send, I know you can send pictures now. Sure. And, and obviously sure. links yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So how does that play into what you're doing with, let's say, the smaller restaurants and bars that you're working with. Yeah, they'll like Instagram is is very important, especially for food, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I always say to these bar and restaurant owners, specifically, the idea of social media, Instagram, Facebook, is to get people off social media and into your store, mm -hmm. and 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 
not necessarily people aren't necessarily going to see the Instagram post or the Facebook post mm -hmm. or whatever, but they will put up, let's say, you know, a picture of their latest dish mm -hmm. on on Instagram. But if they have some subscribers as an SMS, they'll mm -hmm. also send it via an image and maybe make an offer around mm -hmm. that. Hey, you know, ask for our new dessert. You know, here's a picture. You know. Uh, and we'll give you X percent off, whatever mm -hmm. it is. You know, pictures go a long way, especially with food and drink. You right. know, let's face it, they, they look nice if they're photographed properly, mm -hmm. you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. So you came from a very musical family and you've gone into, you know, fitness and entrepreneurship and obviously through writing and curriculum development. But your early days with your mom as a music yeah. teacher and your father as a musician, how do you find that that music background influences the way you think, how you approach business, how you approach entrepreneurship? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you don't realize it at the time, mm -hmm. but if, you, if you're raised in that sort of creative environment, and they never forced music on myself mm -hmm. or my brother, they just, mm -hmm. it just happened, right? But you, I think you realize it later. Mm -hmm. Right. My brother's an OT up at Columbia Presbyterian and, and he's up there now. And no doubt like that, that type of, uh, you know, it activates certain parts of the brain. It's good mm -hmm. for language and all this other stuff, especially art, music, etc. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize it. But I think, yeah, it mm -hmm. kind of. And math also, and math, by the right, way. Right. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it gives you that maybe extra element of of looking at things from another perspective mm -hmm. that, that maybe you wouldn't have had either. I just read an article actually is like, you want, you want your children to, to do better, have them play an instrument, mm -hmm. right? Like it was, a good, it was a very specific, teach them a musical instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could find it, I'll send it to you. It was like business mm -hmm. insider, not video games, that musical instrument Absolutely. with the hands mm -hmm. and the brain coordination, all that stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think it maybe had something to do with mm -hmm. it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, do you play? Still? I play periodically. As a matter uh -huh. of fact, I just got my clarinet overhauled after many years. Oh, cool. Um, and, yeah, uh -huh. I, and I've been playing on the same horn ever since I was literally five. Uh -huh. So, so uh, mm -hmm. you know, that I picked it out. And I got, you get mad at yourself, too. Because mm -hmm. my dad, who graduated Juilliard, I mentioned earlier, he picks up the trumpet every once in mm -hmm. a while. And he gets mad at himself because it's like, damn it, you know, you, you know how good you are. Right. Uh -huh. And then you're like, oh, shit, I still remember how to read music. Right. OK. You know, <laughs> but I, I kind of, you know, now that I've re overhaul it, you mm -hmm. know, um, I, I, I think I'll probably be picking it up more often. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, how can people find you for local mobile? It's just localmobiletoday.com. You know, okay, local mobile today. today. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, the company is Local Mobile Marketing Solutions. I think Local Mobile Today sounds a little weird as a, as a, as a company name. Mm -hmm. But, but I, for the website, I kept that. Yeah. Uh -huh. And integritysq.com for Integrity Square. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and Halo Talks, too. I got to plug Halo Talks. talks. I, got, I got to. Thank you. Because it's such a good reference for, for people. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you.